You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. For more information about location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. over the last six years, lots of churches in 20 years, and I just told your pastor, this is the third church that we've been in that really and truly worships. Thank you for that. I just praise God. I tell you what, tears were already flowing, and I get so mad at myself. Give him a hand. That's right. I just hate it when I cry because the mascara just goes right down here, y'all. So if i got mascara everywhere, forgive me. Uh, there seems to be some question as to who this seminar is for, so I want to clear that up right now, okay? If you're a mom, will you raise your hand? All the moms in here, okay? Keep them up. If you're a daughter, will you raise your hand? Keep them up, moms and daughters. Okay. If you're a dad, will you raise your hand? And if you're a son, will you raise your hand? Is there anybody that is not raising their hand? Because I want to know who you are. Okay, you can put them down. If you raised your hand, this seminar is for you. Because, y'all, it's about our relationship to him and our relationship to other people in our lives. If you're a single parent, if you're a single person, if you're a blended family, if you're just a tradi- what we think of as the old traditional married family, uh, or if you're a college student, whoever you are, you are a some type of family. And you have relationships to God and to each other. This is for you. I hope I cleared that up. Thank you, Margaret, for taking care of that. I also want you to know that I'm wearing this tie in honor of the one person out there that I see wearing a tie. (laughs) Now, your pastor told me it was very informal, and I said, well, I'll try to dress as formal as the most dressed guy, formal dressed guy there, and there he is. One guy. I'm not wearing it again the rest of the week, though. A woman telephoned her friend. She picked up the phone and called, and she asked how she was feeling. The other end, the woman said, I'm feeling terrible. My head's splitting. My back's hurting. My legs are killing me. My house is a mess. And the kids are absolutely driving me crazy. Very sympathetically, the caller told the woman, said, listen, you go and you lie down. I'll come right over, I'll cook lunch, I'll clean your house, I'll take care of the children while you get some rest. And then the woman on the phone said, "Uh, by the way, how's Sam? Sam? Who's Sam? My heavens, exclaimed the woman, I guess I called the wrong number. There was a long pause, and the lady said, would you come over anyway? Folks, that's the life we live. Parenthood, it's wonderful. Homes, wonderful. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we're here, Father, to honor and glorify you and to find your answers for how we deal with our children and how we as children deal with our parents. 
Lord, give us insight. Open us up. Teach us today. Father, thank you for the wonderful time of praise and worship. Lord, we've been so blessed already. Now you take over and you teach us that we might respond the way we should. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Father and mothers, I want to ask you a question. What are you doing to make a difference in the life of your children? How are you going to plan to keep them out of trouble? What's, what's your plan? You see, we hear a lot about if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And I want to just ask you, what's your plan? If you have no plan, I would like to introduce you to a very simple five-step plan this morning of how you can totally change the relationship you have with your child. And young people, I would encourage you to listen because I'm also going to talk to you about how you can deal with your parents and how you can make it happen also from your point of view. We all want what's best for our children. I knew, I knew with our two girls, I wanted the very best for them. And you know, it's amazing that we had a friend tell us that what we needed to do is start praying for their spouses while they were 10 and 12 years old. And we started praying for their spouses. And let me tell you what God did. Our youngest daughter, who you're gonna hear a lot about here in just a few moments, our youngest daughter, her husband is pastor at First Baptist Church Pleasanton. Our oldest daughter, her husband, works for the seminary that Henry Blackaby started in Canada. Those are the guys that God put in the lives of our children, and we truly believe that he did that as we prayed earnestly for them. Our plan was to pray for those spouses that would lead our children's families to the Lord. If you don't have a plan, let me share one with you. Can we understand that children will always make mistakes? Can we understand that there's a lot of things that we should have done as parents that we didn't do? You're going to hear a lot about the mistakes that Margaret and I made over the next few days, and we made many, many mistakes. When those children go off in the wrong direction, it, it, the pain and agony that we feel, Margaret describes it just like the birth pains that she had when they had that baby. And I want you to see that as difficult as is for us to admit that we make mistakes, we all do. But we should get some comfort. And my message today is to comfort those of you who have made mistakes and those of you that have had children that have gone the wrong way. Because we're going to talk about Jesus' own family and the mistakes they made. And hopefully we can learn something from them and it would help us to be better parents. If you'll turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. This is a passage about parent-child relationships. It's a passage that, uh, that I can preach because I've been in the trenches. I've had the child who rebelled. I had the child who turned against everything that I stood for. I have experienced the disappointment, the hurt, and the agony, and the pain. Margaret and I have struggled through that. We, we have the battle scars to prove it. 
So when I preach to you today, I feel like it's something that I can say because I've been there, I've suffered, and yet I've seen the work of God when he completed his task. I want to ask if Margaret would come and just tell our story briefly to introduce this lesson. Well, as Les said, we have two daughters, uh, Debbie, and she's our oldest, and two and a half years later we had Lisa, and they were three grades apart. Uh, Les was not saved till he was 35 years old, and by the time he went into ministry, they were both 12 and 14 years old. And uh, when Lisa got into high school, the Lord moved us, and that was really hard for her, and she decided she didn't want to be a pastor's kid, a minister's kid. And she began to rebel against Les's ministry, and it was quite a terrible time as we went one step forward and two back constantly while she was in high school. And she hated high school so much she realized that she could graduate in three and a half years, and she did, and then she announced she wanted to go to college, and that was a shock to us because she barely passed. She did just enough to pass. And she went off to college, and Les and I began to pray for her, and we prayed, Lord, please let her do well in school, and she did. Can you believe she did even better in college than she did in high school? We prayed that she would have Christian friends, and she did. We prayed that she would have a wonderful church, find a wonderful church up there in Waco, and she did. And yet we still got the call her second semester in college, Mom, I'm pregnant. And I want you to know my world stopped right there. My heart was broken because she knew better, she was taught better, but she made a bad choice. And one of the things God showed me through that, he said, you know, Margaret, you can live your life before your children. You can take them to church. But when they get old enough, they have a choice to make. And it won't always be me, even though you tried to get them to, to choose me. And so Lisa had not chosen the Lord. And I poured out my heart to the Lord, and I said, Lord, we prayed all these things, and you answered those. And he said, but you know, you never prayed that she would be yielded to me. Because when a person's yielded to me, I'll always lead them to the right thing. I'll lead them to righteousness, right living. Pray that for your children. Pray that for people you know, for the Lord, for them. For the Lord, first of all, to help them be yielded to him. That he can lead them to right living. But even as Lisa called us, she had already made the decision that she was going to place this child for adoption. And then she asked me this question, is daddy going to lose his job? And I want you to know, fear gripped my heart immediately and told me, you can't let anyone know about this. You can't let your church family know. They might be mean to you, and your husband could get fired. And so I talked less into keeping what I call our deep, dark secret. And I want to tell you, if you've ever tried to do that, it will absolutely destroy you. And I began to drop out of church. And y'all, try dropping out of church when your husband's a minister there. Not a good idea. Not good. And this had been going on for about five months, but I began to isolate myself from what I needed the most. And I began to think of all the people I'd known over the years that for no apparent reason, or seemed to be no apparent reason, dropped out of church. And I wondered, did they have something in their lives that they thought was so awful they couldn't risk their church family knowing it? because they might kick them when they were down, so they just went away. And about that time, we were going to have a labor renewal weekend, and I informed Les I would not be going to that labor renewal weekend, and he informed me right, now, right back that you will be going if I have to carry you down there kicking and screaming. So I could tell he meant it, so I told him, okay, I'll go, but I will not enjoy it. And uh, I went to that weekend, and on Saturday morning, the man that came 
to lead the weekend said, last night, God told me to throw out every sermon that I'd planned to preach. And that when I stand before you, I am to talk to you about the unconditional love you as a body should have for each other. I knew why. I needed that church to know what was going on in our life, and I needed them to love us through that. And on Sunday night, when we had a big share time, suddenly I found myself in front of the church pouring my heart out to them about what we had been going through and the pain and the agony that were so real to us. And I want you to know they asked Les to come down, and our pastor was going to pray for us. And there was about 300 people there that night, and suddenly in mass, they just all got up. And they came down to the front. And as many of them as could touch us, touched us. And they surrounded us. And our pastor prayed for us. And then one by one, they came by and loved on us. And said, we are going to be there for you. And ladies, I want to tell you what I, man, I just spoke to ladies the other day. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you it was the greatest outpouring of love I've ever experienced in a church. First Baptist Deer Park will always have a special place in my heart for how they took care of us. But our daughter had the baby. She placed the baby for adoption. And, you know, God has such a sense of humor because, as Les told you, she is now married to a Baptist preacher. But God used that to turn her life around. In fact, when I got through having my pity party, God said to me, Margaret, you've got some things to learn through this. That's one reason you're hurting so bad. But, folks, if you haven't figured out by now, when somebody in your family falls into sin, it hurts everybody in the family. And we were all hurting. But this is what God chose to use to bring my daughter back to him. And he brought her back to him, and our little granddaughter was adopted. And I told Les, I said, you know, I don't know how this is going to happen, but we're going to have a relationship with this kid. God has assured me somehow we're going to know this child before she's 18 years old. I could have never guessed what God had in store for us as her parents had adopted her, called us the first Christmas and said, we can't go home for Christmas and our families can't come here. Can we come to your house so you can spend the first Christmas with your little granddaughter? When she accepted Jesus into her life, they asked Les to come to Second Baptist in Houston to baptize her. Recently, she turned 18 years old. They called my daughter down in Pleasanton and said, Lisa, we want to fly you out to California to surprise her for her birthday. Y'all, we have had a wonderful relationship. God has used that, and I want to tell you, what I thought was the worst thing that ever happened in my life, I will tell you today is the best thing because it turned my daughter's life back to the Lord. It gave her a ministry, and when her husband went to Fort Worth to seminary, she started working in a crisis pregnancy center, doing sonograms on any abortion-minded girl. And over the next three years, she did over 4,000 sonograms, leading over 500 girls to the Lord. Y'all, what was my few months of pain worth? Not much, when God had a kingdom purpose for what I thought was awful. Can you let him take what you think is awful in your life and use it to his honor and his glory? Let's look at this passage and see what we can learn from Jesus' family. Starting in verse 41 of Luke 2. I want to read 41 and 42. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to their custom. Jesus' parents were a religious example to him. 
That's, that's the first principle that I want you to understand is when we talk about raising children, the one thing we must be is we must be a religious example to them. You know, it, you don't, if you don't feel confident in sharing your Christian faith with your children, then the least you can do is take them to a church, take them to a church school, take them to vacation Bible school, do everything you can to put them in touch with the Word of God. And I promise you, His Word does not return void. But the main thing that you can do as parents is you need to understand you yourself need to be walking with the Lord if you're going to be an example. And if you struggle with that, let me encourage you to get involved in church, in a Bible study. I understand you do home Bible studies on Sunday night. I was saved in a home Bible study, a neighborhood's home Bible study when I was 35 years old. I know the value of that. I wrote my doctoral paper on the training of home Bible study leaders because it is such an incredible tool of a church. But if you, are, if you struggle in your walk with the Lord, let me assure you, your children are going to struggle too. So the first thing that we must do in our plan of how to raise children effectively is we need to be a religious example for them. Proverbs 22.6 is one we're all familiar with. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, we all know that one, but let me explain a little bit about that word train from the Greek. It's more than giving lectures. It's more than rules and regulations. It's more than saying no. It's more than sending them to church and to school to find out what's right. No, the word train that is used, when you see it in the Greek, what it jumps out and tells you is that the word train literally means that you become an example so that they can see it and as they see it they are trained to understand what it is to walk with him and that's what we must be about if you do not want a child to lie and cheat then don't lie and cheat if you don't want your child to smoke and drink and do drugs then don't do those things how about bitterness how about anger how about infidelity how about unforgiveness? How about unlovingness? You see, what they see in you is what they understand reality to be. In all of our counseling, that's the most difficult thing that we convey to, to, to parents. They are looking to you, and what they're seeing happening between the two of you is how they understand marriage is going to work. Training up a child is more than rules and regulations. When you look at this and you begin to understand what, what we're talking about, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I, I've just got to go to this passage. I normally don't, but I do this morning. I want to go to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. It says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as spiritual, but unto, as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying strife and divisions, and ye are not carnal, and walk as men. Look at verse 1. He says, brethren, so folks, he is talking to Christians. And he's saying to them, okay, there's two different ways to lead your life. You can lead your life as carnal 
or you can lead your life as spiritual. And he is distinguishing between the two. He's addressing Christians, but he's saying there's two ways for you to live your life. And what, what do we have from that? What do we learn from that? In Romans chapter 8, verse 5, and I'll just read it. You don't need to turn to it. Listen to what it says as we talk about what it means to be carnal and what it means to be spiritual. Romans 8, 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the laws of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye who are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So here it is. We're confronted with this thing of being an example for our children. But the Scriptures clearly tell us, okay, you profess Christ, you have received your Savior, but now you've got to live your life. And how do you live it? Do you live it in the flesh? Or do you live it in the spirit? Let me explain this to you with a hand deal that I used to illustrate it. And I think I might have used it when I was here before for those of you that were here last time we were here. Here you are living your life, doing your thing like I was at the age of 35. And then in a home Bible study, someone introduced me to the person of Jesus Christ. And one night in July 1979, alone in my bedroom while reading a book called Faces of Victory, I realized that I was separated from God. I was not connected to him, nor did I have access to him because of all the sin in my life. And so at that point in time, that night in my bedroom, I got down on my knees and I said, Lord Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize I'm separated from you. And I desire to be attached to you so that you may work in my life. And I bowed down my heart to him, and I came to the in Christ relationship. And as I joined with him, I became a new creation, is what's described in the scriptures. And I joined him into the in Christ relationship. And when you look at the New Testament, what you will find is most of the promises of God are given in Christ. It's here as we are bowed down to him and he has eternal life, therefore I have eternal life. He has access to God, therefore I have access to God. Why? Because I am in him. Now here's the most amazing part of this relationship and that's what Paul was addressing there. The spiritual position is to be in Christ and letting him lead and guide everything that we do. We surrender our life to him. We sur surrender our kids to him. We surrender our jobs to him. We surrender everything to him. He is the Lord, and this is lordship. But what's so amazing, he will allow us to take over any time we want to. When I get to heaven, it's the first question I'm going to ask Jesus is, why do you let us take over all the time? Because here we go, and we begin to do it by our selfish motives. Self takes over. This is carnal. Carnal literally means self. We're doing everything. Is Jesus still there? Yes, he's there, but he's not on the throne of our lives. We're doing what we want to do. We go where we want to go. We say what we want to say. 
We're not concerned about him. We're not concerned about his teachings. And that's what Paul is addressing here. He's saying to us, as parents, you have to be spiritual. You have to be letting the Lord lead you. You have to be in the Lordship in Christ relationship. You cannot be doing it on your own. And that's what he's addressing. And we have to understand when we talk about this, what we're talking about, we must be a spiritual example to our children so that they can understand what the relationship with God is all about. Look at the second one, verse 43 through 45. It says, After the feast was over, while the parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among the relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. (laughs) Folks, This is Jesus' family. Can you understand his parents, like so many of us, were so busy doing their own thing that they didn't even notice that their child was not with them? I mean, we are so wrapped up in our things, and our things can include job, church, activities, sports. We can get so wrapped up that we forget that we have children that are looking to us for support and affirmation. If we're going to influence our children, we must spend time with them. And I'm talking quality time. When I went to seminary, I had a professor. The first course that I ever took in seminary, we walk in. It was a childhood psychology course, and the guy said, I want to ask you two questions. When was the last time you hugged your kid and told them that you loved them? Question number two. When was the last time you sat down with your child and found out what was happening in their world? Not your world, but what's happening in their world. What's going on at school? What's happening in their peer group? What kind of pressure are they under by the other kids? You sit down. When was the last time you sat down with them and talked to them about what was happening in their life? I'm sitting there, 36 years old, and I could never remember doing either one of those two things. I hate to admit that to you, but that's what I was confronted with that day. I went home and I asked my girls to come into the living room, and I told them, I said, I want to talk to you. I I want to hear you say to me what's happening in your life, and they looked at me like I was some kind of foreign alien. They, they didn't know what to do. And, and they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't interact with me. Why? Because they had never done it. They didn't know how to do it. And I said to them, I said, here's the deal. I said, I need to, to connect with y'all and share with you some of the things that I'm struggling with, and I need to know what you're struggling with. And I said, why don't we get back together on Thursday night, and I looked at both of my daughters. I said, why don't we get back together and we'll talk about sex? (laughs) I had their attention. (laughs) But let me tell you something. They were scared to death. But we did come back, but we didn't talk about sex. We talked about relationships. And I asked them, what's going on? What's happening? Businessmen, 
sportsmen, golfers, fishermen, churchgoers, what is the message that your children are receiving by your allotment of time to them? What are they hearing you say? And I want to say to you that if you're going to make a difference in their life, you have to spend time with them. You're in a position to encourage them, to discourage them, to build them up, to tear them down, to liberate them, or to hang them up with lifelong inhibitions. If you want your children to be effective in life, you've got to spend time with them and affirm them and encourage them. What's your plan? What's your affirmation strategy? What's your, what's your strategy for telling them they're worthwhile? You need to be thinking about that because they're looking to you for those answers. Look at verse 46 through 50. 46 through 50. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. You were searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. The third thing that we must have in our plan for raising children is the understanding that they are becoming adults. They have a destiny. We as parents, we, we, need, to, we need to do the things I talked about, but then we have to come to the place where we say, I understand that they are becoming adults. Jesus was starting to mature but his parents were still thinking of him as their little boy. Jesus knew that he had a destiny to fulfill. This incident was the first flexing of his muscle of maturity. And this encounter was one that his parents were not prepared for. But I want to say to you parents, are you willing to say to your teenager today, I realize you're maturing, and I want to give you some freedoms. Scary thought, isn't it? Yeah, I saw the looks on your face. <laughs> Confrontation between parents and maturing children occurs in every home. This battle that goes on in our life as the children begin to mature and want to start doing some things on their own and the parents having the thought of they are their children, they don't know what to do. That struggle goes on in every home, and how you handle that struggle will determine the way that you relate to your children. On one side, the parents who have been providing for all their children's needs and making all the decisions because the children were not mature enough to make decisions. But then on the other side, here are children who are maturing and want to start caring for some of their own needs and developing their own set of values and want to make their own decisions. How you handle that confrontation will determine the way you relate to that child 
And every parent and child goes through this struggle. You basically have two options. You have the control option. And this is where I was as a 36-year-old parent. This was where I lived in the control option. Controlling parents make all the decisions, do all the work, meet the needs of the children the way the parents see that they should be met, and usually refuse to recognize the developing potential of their kids. That was me. If you're going to live in my house, you will obey my rules, and there will be no questions. These are the rules, and that's the way it's going to be. And when you graduate and go to college, then you can do whatever you want to do. Well, folks, I didn't realize how I was destroying my kids. Flexibility is the other option you have, and that's letting your child go, but giving them clear boundaries by letting them make decisions within those boundaries. It's extremely important that we explain why the boundaries exist. Parents must realize that the parental protection that we so desperately want to give our children is a temporary situation. There will be a day where they leave and they have to make their own decisions. What you find is a child who grew up under a tight controlling parent normally goes off to school and totally rebels against everything that that parent stands for because they have no values of their own. Let me illustrate this to you. Our, our oldest daughter, Debbie, Miss Everything, never gave us a bit of trouble that I can remember. And then there was Lisa, her little sister, who was everything else. But Debbie called me one night, and she said, Dad, I want to bring some people over to watch a movie. I said, that'll be fine. Mom and I will go in the bedroom, and y'all just have the, the living room. And there was a pause on the other end, and Debbie says, but Dad, it's an R-rated movie. Now, in the controlling environment, we had rules against R-rated movies, and the rule was no such, no such movie would ever walk through our front door. That was the rules. But for some reason that night, God told me, keep your mouth shut. And I said to her, I said, Debbie, you know how I feel, but you make the decision. You're a junior in high school, and I want you to decide what you're going to do. You know how I feel about the R-rated movie. Well, I wish I could tell you that she didn't come with the R-rated movie, and, but you know the story. She brought it. I went in the bedroom. I wanted to go in there, rip the movie out of the VCR, shred it right in front of the children, kick every one of them out of my house. That's what I wanted to do. Margaret will tell you, I sat in there, and I was red all the way up. And I stayed that way the whole time they were in there. But God kept my mouth shut. The next morning... I wake up, and my darling Debbie was sitting on the bed, and she was crying, and she said, I am so sorry. She said, I will never bring another movie into this house like that. What happened? She established her set of values, and you know what? She's more adamant today against R-rated movies than I ever was. Why? Because I let her make a decision, and from that decision and the wrongness of that decision and the guilt that she carried by making the wrong decision, God did a mighty work. That's what we must do is we must let them 
make decisions within the boundaries that we set, and we must explain why we're asking them to do what we're asking them to do. It's like our, our kids, when, when they want to stay out till 1 o'clock on Saturday night, I said, let me explain something to you. I have to be up the next morning at 6.30 to get to the church, to open the church up and get everything going. And I said, when you stay out till 1, I don't go to sleep until you get home. And I said, would you consider coming in at 12 and giving me that extra hour because I can get by on 6 hours, but I can't get by on 5 hours. And we came to an agreement, and you know they were all right then with coming home at 12. I explained why I wanted them home. It wasn't just a matter, as I had been doing, of saying this is the rule and that's the way it's going to be. You begin to explain to them why you feel the way they do. Understand that conflict is not resolved by yelling and screaming. The one who wins in a conflict between parent and child is not the one who can yell the loudest or hurt the other one the most. That's not the one who wins. The one who wins is the parent who can get the children to understand their position and getting them to obey us because they love and respect us. And how do they love and respect us? As we let them mature and we lead them and guide them. It's about sitting down with them and discussing why. It's about sitting down and listening to their point of view. It's about a 30-minute interaction. What I'm recommending to all parents is to set up in your home that you will set aside 30 minutes every week to have an in-depth discussion with your children. Talk about anything you want to talk about, but listen to what they're saying to you. Pay attention to what they're saying. They may have some ideas you've never thought about. I want to encourage you to set up an agenda to work out in advance those differences that you're going to experience as they mature. Look at verse 51 there in that passage. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them, for his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Then he went down to Nazareth and was obedient to him. Okay, young people. This part of the message is for you. This fourth concept is for you to pay attention to. Even though Jesus knew his destiny, even though he was maturing and he knew that his time was coming, he went back with them and remained obedient to them. Young people, are you remaining obedient to your parents? As your parents give you freedoms, do you abuse the freedoms? Because do you understand that obedience is the mark of maturity? You see, until you're mature enough to be obedient when they're not present, then why should they give you any more freedom? And as you learn to be obedient and as you become obedient, you will find the freedoms will come much easier heard this wonderful story about a, a year ago of two little boys walking down the street and one little boy said to the other one, I finally figured out how to get along with my mom. And the other little boy said, how do you do it? And he said, I just do everything she says. <laughs> it's a dream, I know, but I thought it was a good. Look at verse 52 and I'll conclude with this. Verse 52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and statue and in favor with God and men. The fifth concept in our plan 
is once we go through the other four is we come to the place where we sit down and we look at what God has done and we just praise him for the way he led us. Folks, the raising of children is something that should bring you to your knees more and more and more and more. The more you pray, the more God will open up his avenues of blessing in the way that your children will turn out. Even Lisa, in all of her rebellion, has turned out to be this wonderful, godly person because God did a work in her. Parents, your task is to provide spiritual leadership by your example. Your task is to spend time with them. Your task is to communicate with them about the things going on in their life. And your task is to give them the freedom to grow and experience life while they're still under your watch care. You are preparing them for what God's going to do. But young people, your task is to love and obey your parents, even though they're going to make some mistakes. You need to share with them what hurts you. You need to share your concerns about what's going on in the family. You need to tell them what you would like to see changed. But the most important thing for you, young people, is that you do not abuse the freedoms when they give them to you. Because what you need to recognize is someday you're going to be a parent too. What you learn is what you will do. Time of invitation. What kind of invitation would I have for a message like this? Here's the invitation. I want us to start this revival time the way we should start it at this altar on our knees. We serve an almighty God who wants us, who wants and desires for us to turn to him for the answers we need. We all want revival in our lives, in the lives of our family. Every person sitting in this room has some family member that's struggling right now. Somewhere in your family, there is a person who is struggling. God can come in and change that. What he's looking for is those hearts who are turned toward him. And that's what this time of invitation is about, is to come to the front and turn your heart toward him in the area of family. When you come to the front, I want you to pray about three things, one of three things, or all three. Pray for families that you know that are struggling in the family relationship. Pray for them. Pray specifically for them. Pray for God to pour out his spirit upon us in this time of revival as we come to talk about families and talk about what God can do. Pray for God to pour out his spirit among us. And you've been doing that. But I'm going to ask you to come this morning and do it. Specifically, 
bending our hearts toward him. And the third thing, if you're struggling in your family, in family relationships, come and pray for God to give you the answers in the next three days as to how to deal with what you're dealing with. Pray for families that you know are in trouble. Pray for God's spirit to flow out upon us as we meet together to talk about families that his spirit would lead, not me, his spirit would lead. And the third thing is pray specifically for issues of family that you have yourself. Why am I asking you to come to the front? You see, Satan will do everything he can to keep you in your seat. He does not want you to open up yourself to God. We sang some beautiful praise music a while ago about saying yes to him. Satan says, you don't need to go to the front. I'm saying to you as you come to the front, you are committing yourself to him and you are making it public. People are going to see you. And you're making it public. But the most amazing thing that you do when you come to the front and you pray specifically as I've asked you to pray is you are encouraging others to come and do the same thing. Nobody wants to come up here by themselves. And yet there are people here that desperately need to come. But as you come, they will be encouraged. 